Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Full speed ahead, $1.9 trillion, 100 million vaccinations, and strong new projections for growth. But is there a speed limit to how fast we can drive this economy? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week, this week devoted to the I word, that is inflation. I'm David Weston. So where does this all lead? Do yields continue to climb? At what point does the Fed need to step in? And if it does, where does that leave the dollar? When it comes to understanding the intricate mechanism that is our financial system, there is no one, no one like Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates. Ray is clear that he's not saying what the U.S. should do. Indeed, he's written a book on how capitalism needs to be reformed. But Ray has a clear and certain view about the consequences of fiscal and monetary policy, whatever those policies may be. So we turn to him this week to get a sense of where we may be headed. Think of the economy as being um, like a, an individual in a, um, and their pulse is dropping. When the pulse is dropping, the doctors come running in with the stimulant and they inject stimulant. Now that the economy is rebounding he's, um, and inflation pressures are rebounding, um, there's not the same pressure to administer that stimulation. When it happens, when it becomes a problem, is first, the rising interest rates start hurting financial asset prices. First, typically, they hurt bonds. Then they pass through and hurt stocks because still interest rates affect stocks. And when that starts to affect stocks, that's one thing. Maybe the stock market can correct 10 or 15 percent 
and the Federal Reserve can tolerate it. When it goes beyond that and starts to affect the economy, that's when you see the real trade-off have to search, uh, surface. So that's what that looks like. Okay, so let's play a little Dickens here and, and, and ask about the ghost of Christmas future. At the very end, they say, is this what has to be or can I still change it somewhat? Can we change it somewhat? And could Jay Powell specifically change it or for that matter, the, the administrative government? Our basic situation is that we're spending a lot more money than we're earning. And so our that, that gap exists. And a balance sheet means that we owe a lot more money. And that owing that money is somebody's financial assets, that bonds that they might sell. So you can't, it's not an easy thing to change because what do you do? Spend less money. And if you spend less money, you give less checks out. Or you can't get people to easily earn more money and change that. So it's a difficult dilemma. And it's a particularly difficult dilemma that I think that you're going to see, particularly the part is the late this year and beyond that, because late this year, you're probably going to see um, everything um, be a problem. Um, you're going to probably see higher interest rates um, because growth will be stronger, inflation will be stronger, and that you'll see probably there won't be enough demand on it. So the thing to watch out for as a signal, if this happens, is that you see the need to uh, buy uh, bonds when the economy is strong and when inflation. If you take, um, there's this year and then there's beyond this year. There's, um, and there's the next few years. Um, it's a problem because how we're going to spend money is a political issue, a big political issue. And we're going to have to spend, and there's going to be too much spending. And so that'll affect the value of the dollar and or interest rates. Uh, Ray, as we speak, the Federal Reserve is buying something like $120 billion, both in treasuries and mortgage uh, bonds right now. How can you justify that when they came out and said we're going to have six and a half percent GDP growth this year? Well, um, their, their position would be um, that we are having a rebound from a depressed level, and that we need to have that rebound, and that also averages don't tell, convey the condition of all people. And so the issues, the stimulation is many times, five to seven times the amount of income lost through COVID, so that there's a distribution. Now, if you were to say, what's that distribution for, which is more of a political question, it is for... Um, uh, child uh, enablement. It is for schools. It is for hospitals. It is $1,400 for, uh, for that. So um, the Federal Reserve uh, would say we're just going above their inflation targets, not by much. If you look at indicators like the break-even inflation rate, it's about two and a half percent. And they would say not yet. But the important thing to convey here on inflation is that there are two types of inflation, okay? I just want to make this clear. We're used to one type of inflation, which is when the economy is too hot, um, there's a capacity constraint, and when demand presses up against existing capacity, prices rise. Unemployment rates are low and so forth. There is a thing called a monetary inflation. That's when you can have stagflation. And that monetary inflation 
means that even when the economy weakens, inflation rates rise because there's too much inflation and there's the move out of that. Thanks to Ray Dalio, co-chairman and co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates. Coming up, what $1.9 trillion and vaccinations mean for the real economy. We hear from Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO of Bank of America, about what all this growth means for his customers and the prospect of inflation. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week's Inflation Special with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Everybody pretty much agrees that the vaccines going into people's arms and the $1.9 trillion going into the economy are going to trigger remarkable growth this year. The question is how much and how we can handle that much growth without triggering inflation, which is what we asked Bank of America Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan. Our team has the U.S. growth uh, predicted. Candace Browning Platt, the number one research platform for many of the last decade in years since I've been CEO. They do a terrific job. They have the U.S. growing at 6.5% for 21 and around 5, 5.5 for 22. Now, you have to step back and think about that. That's an economy basically the same size as it was coming into the middle to the end of 18, which was pretty good times in the U.S., predicted to go at three times the rate with an interest rate environment that is probably half or, or lower than it was then. I, there's all the angst about the 10-year moving to 160, but at that point it was two and a half moving towards three. Think about, and the Fed funds rate was much higher than it is now. So think about the amount of accommodation, and then you add the $1.9 trillion stimulus on top of it, plus the stimulus is still on spend. So when you put that all together, and then the stimulus, frankly, from people going back to work as the economy opens, you know, the team is at 6.5% in a huge economy. You know, in the U.S., growing faster than the world economy is predicted. They've got five for the world. If you think about that, that is a pretty powerful engine that has already recovered about 90, 95%, 95 to 97% of where it was, and now is, is growing uh, at three times the rate. That's a pretty powerful prediction, and our team is quite convinced it's all there. Well, and that raises the question a lot of people are asking is, is it possible we may be overheating the economy? Because we also have been increasing the money supply. I think it's up to something like 25% year over year, the M2. Uh, it's been held down, the inflation, because there hasn't been much velocity because people are at home. What happens? when they come out of home. Uh, in fact, some of those depositors you talked about that didn't spend all those stimulus checks, they have it sitting there in their bank account. Are you worried we could get inflation that would be troubling? Well, that's part of the discussion you see in the market. But let me just tell you what we're seeing in our customer base, David, that will help you 
think about that. If you think about last year up till March 9th or 10th, that was before any activities had taken to shut down. And, and we were all hearing about this virus and learning about it. It was really the March 15th and out where people started taking at the government level and in, in the employee level uh, significant actions. If you look at that period of time, 20, 2020 over 19 grew you know, double digits, say 10%. When you look at it, 20 to 21, we're now growing at 6%. And if you look at it for the month of March, for the first part of March here, it's actually growing above uh, 10%. That's pretty unbelievable. And what you're frankly seeing now is the, char the credit card charges, which had been depressed because it's a lot of travel and entertainment, are back and actually growing year over year. Growing year over year at a time pre-pandemic shutdown. And so you're going to see massive year-over-year -year comparisons as you move into April when everything was shut down. So the reality is, is the consumers of Bank of America, which is you know, 50 million people spending $3 trillion plus a year in all these different forms, are spending more money than they did last year and growing at 10%. And that was before the pandemic. That bodes well. And then if you look at the charges, you can see like on a credit card, the seniors and boomers are getting vaccinated. We're up 50% in charges over the last few weeks in terms of travel and, and related things. You're seeing the TSA statistics. So the types of things are happening. Now, by the way, grocery stores are down a little bit. Why? Because people shifted more to uh, restaurants. And that's all bodes well for normalization of the economy. So we see that very good. Does that overheat the economy? I think you've heard it from Chair Powell in many cases. They're willing to take the risk to get the, you know, the average inflation rate above 2%. There are people concerned in the market. We all have that concern because inflation is tough to fight if it gets embedded in there. But our economists are, have raised their projections from 4% to 6% in really 90 days. And I think, likewise, other people will do so. Well, and, Brian, that's part of what I want to ask. You referred to the 10-year yield of being over 1.6 now. And historically, as you point out, that's not that high, goodness knows. But it went up very fast. And some people think it's on its way to go higher than that. Are you concerned about the rapidity with which it's going up? And, by the way, where do you think it ends up? You know, our team basically thinks that it's going to potentially go through 2%. Um, and we'll see. We'll see. It, but it's, it's, the reason it's going up is because people are seeing the economy recover. At the end of the day, this was a health care crisis. And we had to win the war on the health care crisis. It's the first way that I, I thought about it, and I've thought about it ever since, is we have to win the war against this virus. And they have done that. And they haven't completed it yet, but we have the pieces in place. The vaccines are a, a game changer and are being deployed, 100 million shots in arms, which is unbelievable, 30 million sitting on shelves that need to be deployed, and then many coming after it. So I think there's concern about that. I think it'll play out a little bit, David, and I think we have to watch it. But it went up, but it's still back to where it was, you know, only a few months before when it fell, you know, down into the 60 and 80 range. And so I think people have to be careful about these movements are just to get it back in line with where it was, even at a very low level. If you don't look in the last decade and then go back from 2007 backwards and try to count the number of days a 10-year traded below 3%, you won't find a lot. And so as the economy normalizes and the growth rate comes up and we get it above 2%, I think, you know, you'll see a little higher rate, but it'll still be, in the great grand scheme of things, one of the lowest rates we've seen in a long, long time. What does it mean for Bank of America's business specifically? You and I have talked in the past. You are a, a traditional bank. You take deposits. The shape of the yield curve matters to you. It was flat for a long time, even inverted for a minute or two. And now it is really steepening quite a bit. What does that mean, for example, for net interest margin? Your chief financial officer said he's pretty confident about that. Is it looking good for Bank of America? Yeah, we, we saw the trough in the third quarter of 20. And we still see that as a trough, and we see it coming back, and by the end of the year, it's back to where it 
sort of it was pre-pandemic, but it's much different. It's driven more by the sheer volume of deposits. Our team has done a great job in driving our deposit franchise across over a trillion eight in deposits. So the loans are still down. And what we're finally seeing is the loans are stabilizing. It, it, this is one of the good pieces of news. We expect in the month of March we will cross over to where we're producing more small business credit in that month than we did before the pandemic. And that, that's been a long haul. So that's, you know, 13, 12, 13 months. And so we're, we're seeing some loan demand coming in. With capital markets, demand has been outstanding and huge, as you've seen. But in terms of core middle market borrowers, they, they're starting to, it's flattened out, and that's good. So our NII is affected by our deposits, which are growing very strongly. Again, will grow because of all the stimulus coming in. But importantly is to get loan growth, and we're starting to see that stabilize, and that looks good for us going forward. The, the, the shape of the yield curve, you know, with short rates come up, that actually helps us a lot because we have a huge amount of non-interest-bearing deposits that don't reprice. But, but that's the life of being a great bank and being the, really the top deposit-gathering bank in the United States. Thanks to Brian Moynihan, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Coming up, the great Krugman-Summers debate over the risk of inflation. We hear the dovish side from Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week's Inflation Special with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The question of what the $1.9 trillion fiscal injection will mean for the U.S. economy has generated something of a debate between two of our most respected economists, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers of Harvard and Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. Each recognizes that the other has a point, but they have a decided difference in emphasis. With Larry concerned, we're underestimating the risk of inflation, and Paul saying it's not as big a risk as Larry suggests. So we went to the sources themselves and first asked Paul whether in part the problem is that we are very much in uncharted territory. Okay, this is a, it's, it's a lot of money. I mean, even, um, you know, uh, even for an economy the size of the U.S., uh, 1.9 trillion here, 1.9 trillion there, and soon you're talking about real money. And it's, uh, um, if it was designed as a, fiscal stimulus, it would be a very, very big fiscal stimulus. Now, it's actually not really designed that way. Large parts of it are probably not going to have a very big, certainly short-term multiplier effect on the economy. So it is going to boost the economy. It's, uh, we're going to, you know, the consensus forecasts are for five and a half, six percent growth over the course of this year. Some estimates are running higher than that. Um, most of those estimates suggest that we're going to be pretty much at full employment by early next year, uh, which is uh, you know, which is a good thing. Does mean that it's not silly to think that there might be some inflationary pressure, but it does not look, at least as I read it, and as I, I think as the consensus of the Wall Street economists read it, like it's a a major inflationary threat. Well, and Chair Powell has said, yes, there will be some uptick in some prices, but it will be, as he says, transitory. Yeah. Uh, how will you as an economist look at the data to decide whether it's transitory or more than transitory? Well, first of all, we're going to look at things. You know, one of the concepts that has really, really worked over the past 15 years is core inflation. Uh, it's, uh, it's not the only thing to look at, but taking out food and energy and maybe some tr- other things, look, look at stuff that's obviously just supply bottlenecks. Um, the, uh, you know, wood prices are way up. Uh, that's not a sustained inflationary issue. That's because we've had a surge in demand and, uh, and we'll deal with it. So you, you want to look at underlying measures of inflation, 
you want to look at wages. Um, you want to just generally say, is this, is this looking like the, the build up to the 70s? And um, you know, my guess is it's very unlikely to look like that. It's uh, our kind of worst case scenario. The closest I can come to this and is, is something like the Korean War, which actually did lead to a one year spike in inflation, but then inflation quickly subsided back to, uh, to an underlying rate of around 2%. And that's, that's a worst case. I don't think this is going to be nearly as inflationary as that. Uh, the, the stimulus to the economy will come not just from $1.9 trillion, but also it looks like from the vaccines really kicking in a big way. I mean, we have had, I think, a suppression of demand, not just supply, because people have been getting checks and haven't been able to spend it the way they would have otherwise because they're locked up at home. Their restaurants aren't open. They can't go on flights. Uh, does that give you some pause here that we could have a rapid uptake, a real demand, a lot of dollars searching the same number of services and goods really quickly? Yes, although the, it's two-sided. I mean, the pandemic has prevented people from spending in the way they uh, they, they would have normally, but it's also preventing some goods and services from being supplied in the way they would have. So on the one hand, uh, yeah, people will start eating in restaurants again. On the other hand, restaurants will be able to start serving meals again. So there's, a, there's both a demand and a supply effect from the vaccines. And on, on balance is probably somewhat inflationary because some of that increased spending will spill over to other stuff. But it's not nearly as much as, you know, just looking at the growth numbers is, is not getting the whole story. We, we are right now have an economy that, that is depressed in part because of supply constraints that will go away. As the, uh, as the vaccination spreads. So you've been uh, in a fairly famous now debate with Larry Summers over yeah. the risk of inflation. And in fairness to Larry, he's not saying it's a certain thing. It's just something he thinks is a serious uh, problem we have. Uh, one of the issues, as I understand it, is how you look at it, what the model is you apply. As you said, this is not a typical situation of a downturn. This is special. It's more like a natural disaster or even a war. Uh, I guess my question really is, do we have a model that covers this? Do we know what the likely effect on inflation would be, given that it is sui generis? Well, no, uh, this is it's very hard to come up with a historical parallel. Actually, one of the funny things I just want to say about the debate between me and Larry is that we conceptually <laughs> have very similar views of the economy. We're just making some different judgments about the numbers. Uh, it really, uh, I don't, I don't think you can take a look at, at the way he's talking about it and the way I'm talking about it and say that there's a fundamental difference in economic philosophy there is really a judgment about the numbers. And I think that if, if I was going to make my case, I would say, I would say, I would look at the form of this $1.9 trillion and say that a lot of it is in fact, although useful in important ways is not going to be, uh, pushing up demand all that much in the short run. That was Paul Krugman, author of Arguing with Zombies. Coming up, we'll hear the other side of the debate from our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, 
And it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week's Inflation Special with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I don't think the right question is whether this package would overheat the economy. I think if it were passed as written, it would overheat uh, the economy. But will this shift the debate towards our doing more? Will this shift the debate uh towards doing more for those who've been left behind? And I think there, uh, the answer is yes. But we are going to have to watch this economy very carefully. And I do think the conventional wisdom is underestimating the risks of hitting capacity. That was special contributor Larry Summers here on Wall Street Week back in January. Now, two months later, the question is, what has changed? and whether the risk of inflation is less or more than what Larry saw back then. David, I'm, I'm much more concerned. Uh, markets have had their biggest increase in the 10-year in a century, with only one uh, exception, showing that they've got a real concern. The fiscal policy outlook has dimmed from where it was as the full stimulus that was contemplated then has passed. People have declared that it's a new era in ways that suggest that large fiscal policy will continue for a long time uh, to come. The COVID recovery has accelerated, which is a very good thing, but means more demand pressure. And the Fed has stuck to its guns on no rate hikes for, for years and years and continuing to grow its balance sheet. So it seems to me that what was kindling is now igniting. And I am much more worried that we'll have either inflation or we will have a pretty dramatic fiscal monetary collision. Are we mishandling macroeconomic policy right now in the United States? I think this is the least responsible macroeconomic policies we've had in the last 40 years. I think fundamentally it's driven by intransigence on the Democratic left and intransigence and completely unreasonable behavior in the whole of the Republican Party that's driven us to the kind of political deals uh, that we're seeing. And they're understandable. And I understand why reasonable people, given the tragic choices they have, might make these kinds of macroeconomic uh, choices. But I think we are running enormous risks. I would put the risks this way, David. I think there's about a one-third chance that inflation will significantly accelerate over the next several years and will be in a stagflationary situation, like the one that materialized between 1966 and 1969, 
where inflation went from the range of ones to the range of uh, sixes. I think there's a one-third chance that we won't see inflation, but that the reason we won't see it is that the Fed hits the brakes hard, markets get very unstable, the economy skids downwards close to recession. And I think there's about a one-third chance that the Fed and the Treasury will get what they're hoping for and will get rapid growth, which will moderate in a non-inflationary way. But there are more risks in this moment that macroeconomic policy itself will cause grave consequences than I can remember. There have been terribly serious moments in the past, but then macroeconomic policy was trying to stabilize things. Now, there's the real risk that macroeconomic policy will be very much destabilizing things. You and Paul Krugman have had uh, an extended debate, a constructive debate, I would say. You agree on a fair amount of things, although you disagree around the edges. One of the things that Paul Krugman says is we don't have to worry about this inflation risk quite so much because it takes a long time. If you go back to the 70s, it took 10 years to really have it develop. And therefore, there's plenty of time for the Fed to react. What's your response? He's just wrong. Look at the 1966 to 1969 period before there were any supply shocks, when William McChesney Martin was exuding much more concern about inflation than Jay Powell is uh, today, when the guns and butter of Lyndon Johnson was a very small fiscal expansion compared to what we're seeing today, and when inflation went up about four percentage points in uh a three, three plus year uh, period. It's just wrong to say that. And this idea, I don't understand how people say that expectations are anchored. And they also say that we're in an entirely new era of policy where the neoliberal era is over and a new progressive tide is be- behind us. If we're in an entirely new era of policy, then I'd expect people to reorient their expectations. So I don't really understand uh, the logic of those who are serene right now. And to remind, markets have had as dramatic a first quarter as any time in the last century, except for 1980, which was of course presaged um, all the chaos of the end of the Carter years and then the terrible 1982 recession. So I don't know how sanguine Chair Jay Powell is, but he has been saying, and we heard from him yet again this week, we don't have to worry about this risk of inflation so much because there is slack in the labor market. There is something like 9 million people who don't have a job today who did have one before the pandemic. Does that give us a cushion against some of the downside here? I don't, I don't think so. And I don't understand why he finds that argument persuasive. Uh, the 9, 10, 11, whatever it is, million people that he estimates represents about 6% of uh, the workforce. They have lower wages than others, uh, so they contribute less in just productivity terms. So it corresponds to a gap of about 4% in uh, GDP. According to the Fed's own forecast, that gap will be closed by the end of this year. And 
we're going to still have zero interest rates. We're still going to have big budget deficits. We're going to have all the saving that he thinks and Paul Krugman thinks are going to be generated by this stimulus that's going to get spent at some point, likely 2022 and likely 2023, uh, to overheat the economy. So look, nobody can predict these things with great confidence, but I'm very concerned that the inflation risks are high. And frankly, I'm concerned that there are going to be hundreds of PhD economists at the Fed who are going to be devoting their efforts to explaining how any bad statistics are transient or distorted in uh, the statistics. And so I'm very worried, given this new approach, that we're going to be very slow in any necessary responses to inflation um, if it comes. How will the consequence of inflation express themselves to ordinary Americans? Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember the 80s, and I remember the real concern, fundamental concern. I remember mortgage rates at 18.5%. I, I remember retirees being really concerned about living on a fixed income. How will it express itself this time? David, look, uh, we're not going to have 18% mortgage rates. We're not going to go all the way back to the 1970s. I think it's important to be concerned, but it's also important to keep concerns uh, in perspective. That said, here's one aspect that I'm struck by. In the discussions of the statistics, the rental, um, the owner-occupied housing part of the index is something that's holding it way down and holding measured inflation down. And yet across America, House prices are going up faster than they have in a long time. And given what's happened to Treasury yields, mortgage yields are on their way up and refinancing opportunities are on their way uh, down. So I think for families thinking about the cost of owning a home in all the ways they would think about it, it's going to be going up pretty fast over the next year. And so if somehow policymakers are taking consolation from some index that's showing some construction of owner housing as holding down inflation, I don't think that's going to be a very comfortable thing. Thanks to special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. And the winner is Hungary. There's an awful lot of talk these days about inflation, about whether it's coming, about whether it will last, about whether it will get out of control. For those of us old enough to remember the 1980s, it's not surprising that we get nervous about our money growing less and less valuable. After all, some of us actually had mortgages at over 18% interest. And the burden inflation places on savers and those on fixed incomes, and there are more and more of us, is very real. But when it comes to serious inflation, hyperinflation, the United States has never been in the same league as some others. Think about the French Revolution, when inflation reached 143%, and that is a month, not a year. Or the Weimar Republic, when it got up to 29,500% a month. And note that just about every instance of hyperinflation came tied to a war or other armed conflict. But the top prize goes to Hungary. When, in the aftermath of World War II, the Pengo fell by 13.6 quadrillion percent every month. Not surprisingly, Hungary decided to ditch that currency altogether and move to the foreign. 
So even as we and the Fed keep an eagle eye on those inflation expectations and the break-evens, we can take some comfort in just how stable our currency really has been, at least so far. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.